The, the talk tonight is a middle of the retreat talk. So, and I've been checking my watch and it's the middle of the retreat. And so there's a few things that we'd like to convey tonight about what we're doing here in terms of samadhi, the practice of concentration or unifying ourselves in the present moment and with our experience. <clears throat> and I'll, I'll echo some of what's been said, I hope. Um, you know, we, we began, Philip was talking about the felt sense of experience. And it's a key piece that we've all been encouraging in our different ways and with different language about how to come into the felt sense or the direct experience of the body and the breath. And knowing the body and the breath, the breathing, through the living experience, through the liveness that's here right now, breathing. And as part of that, I'd like to encourage um, um, your participation in this talk. And the participation I would like to ask for is that you uh, keep practicing during the talk. And so pay attention to your body and breath while you're listening. And fine if your eyes are open or fine if your eyes are closed. But see what happens if you keep, if you stay close to the thread that we're working with here on this retreat, which is the breathing body, or the body that's breathing. And um, I won't be offended if you forget about the talk, because the breath becomes even more prominent while I'm speaking. Uh, in, and in some way, I'm you know, I'm, of course, being a little humorous because I like to be humorous, but also because um, uh, what I'm talking about, what we've been talking about, is sitting in your seat. Whatever we're saying, whatever we're pointing at, is right here. It's in this living human be being and what's po possible, the potential for each of us to discover or realize about who and what we are. And, um, and so that's why the encouragement um, is to stay with the practice. And I'll say more about this later because consistency is one of the hidden powers or hidden components that create the power of samadhi and of concentration. And so please play with it. And I've said this before, I believe in the big room, that I like the word play. I think it's a great way to practice is to play because we're all discovering how to practice and what practice is pointing at that's sitting in our seat. And um, I'm not sure if Philip used this word at some point, but somebody used the word adventure 
Yeah, Philip did. And I love that word about practice because I'm trying to find the end of the adventure and I haven't found it yet. Meaning I've been practicing for a while and it's a great adventure. So, and also, of course, I want to pay respects and um, acknowledge one of my teachers, uh, uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, and he would always say, oh yeah, your breath is more important than the talk. The, ta- the breath is more important than the talk. So stay with your breath. Stay with your body and the breathingness of your body. And see what happens. See, you know, maybe you won't hear anything, but usually the words come in. Or the words that need to come in will come in. And if they don't, we'll say some version of them again tomorrow night. <laughs> so you have a few opportunities. And Andrea talked about the jhanic factors, and we especially were emphasizing the aiming and sustaining, and that um, uh, beautiful uh, skill of learning how to orient towards the breath and hang out with it, right? That's, I'm giving you a huge version of aiming and sustaining. Turn towards, hang out, be with it, feel it, sense it, know it, be aware of it after you've turned towards it very directly, very immediately. And Sally was talking so beautifully last night about the seven factors of enlightenment of which samadhi is one of the key factors. and. And uh, she also said this, um, that it's a factor in many, or she gave out the sheet too, you saw how it's a factor in so many different um, ways the Buddha looked at reality, including the Eightfold Noble Path, right? It has a whole basket of three pieces called samadhi. And the samadhi basket is the basket we're in right now not because we're studying samadhi, but because the contemplative basket is called samadhi. And it includes right effort, right mindfulness, and right samadhi. And as long as I'm using the word right, I always like to give a little definition for that word sama, sama samadhi, sama sati, right, right mindfulness, or right, and right concentration. Um, Sama is generally translated as right, and now it's more PC to say wise, wise mindfulness or wise um, samadhi. I'm old-fashioned, I'm old, so I'm old-fashioned. Um, and I like the word right, and, um, and, but I've also read enough about the word right and what it can mean. And the, the understanding that I like best is right means um, bringing one in alignment with the Dharma. That's what it means when we say right samadhi. Samadhi that brings us in alignment with the Dharma. Right mindfulness, mindfulness that brings us in alignment or understanding the Dharma. And of course, Dharma, also a beautiful word, uh, my favorite translation is truth. And so right samadhi is bringing us in alignment with 
the truth, with the Dharma, of the, the truth of the way things are. And I'll, you'll hear, I'll say a little more about that because I'm going to talk about some rights when I hopefully go through this talk. <clears throat> so, and one of the rights I want to talk about, in addition to, you know, right samadhi, sama samadhi, is right effort. Because whether you've noticed it or not, you're all applying, attempting to apply right effort, effort that is skillful, effort that brings us in alignment with the Dharma, with the truth of the way things are, with the understanding both of what the Buddha taught and what he was pointing at in the teaching. <clears throat> and Philip actually talked, I believe the first night, uh, or, or one night or some point, about mastery. And I love that phrase. I, I, uh, I believed I used it here at this retreat many, many years ago. I talked about mastery. And I like it because um, it's pointing to something we're doing here, which is becoming the masters of our practice. Because we're not the... We're all the masters of our own practice. It, it doesn't work any other way in Buddha Dharma, as far as I understand. And so mastery is, and mastery is not about control, you know, or authority, but it's about skill and being skillful and learning how to, the art of skillfulness, which is a beautiful part of the Dharma that's not even talked about much, but it's really part of, this is what we're doing as practitioners. We're learning how to be skillful in, in applying and investigating and enacting and there's another word I want, living, it's not quite it, realizing the teachings the Buddha taught. And we begin to master it by living it, becoming it. And we become it by doing these very, very, extremely simple practices. And, and I'm emphasizing the simple part, partly because we've been using that word and I like it a lot, but also because it's what's difficult for us. Simple is difficult. We're used to, we're oriented towards complexity. We're, in, we're, we're all, it's just like, you know, how many of you noticed the you don't have your cell phone in your hand most of your time? And, you know, and of course, that's an age thing. I know the older people aren't quite as tuned into that, but younger people, that's part of reality these days. And it's not a bad thing. It's a normal thing. But we're not used to simplicity. We live in a very complex world these days and it has its in Eugene language pluses and minuses meaning we get a tremendous amount of information including Dharma information like that but all the information which is on one level fantastic is a lot it's complex and especially because the Buddha's teaching on a certain level is so simple. 
right? Especially the piece that we're working with, right? We're, we've given you one instruction this whole retreat, right? Did everybody get that, right? And you're, and you're working with it right now as you stay with the breath. Even as you're hearing me, even as you're thinking, because your thoughts will come and you'll like what I'm saying or not like what I'm saying or, you know, whatever, the, I, whatever happens for you, you can still keep being curious about, oh, how's the breath now? What's it feel like now? And, wh- and what happens as I stay connected to it or open to it or sensitive, that's a word I like, sensitive to the fact that we're breathing beings in this human form and that breathing beingness is happening right here, right now. And so the mastery that we're discovering is a skillfulness that brings a kind of responsiveness to practice that includes our intelligence, our heartfulness, our creativity, our understanding, and our sensitivity as living beings. And that sensitivity is a beautiful part, I believe, of what we're um, watching, learning how to live with as it functions the sensitivity of this living, breathing beingness and the knowing of it that is happening in real time. It's not happening yesterday or tomorrow. Whatever happened then or is going to happen, you know, in the future, who knows. But the only thing we're really interested in is so simple right now. And, you know, really, if I was really an enlightened teacher, I'd just stop the talk right there. Because you, you, that, that's the whole talk on some level. But you're lucky I'm not an enlightened teacher, so I'll keep speaking for a while. So, um, so what I'm pointing at is we're starting to discover the fullness of what's sitting here. And of course, when I say a word like that, I think, oh, I should be careful, because of course, fullness includes the emptiness that's here also. I don't want to create a, a division between the two. And, and actually, that's a, that wasn't in my talk, but I'm going <laughs> to, it, it works because I wanted to talk a little about the paradox of the Dharma and of what we're doing here of what it means to start to uh, learn about or realize or become more sensitive to the quality of samadhi, of concentration. And one of the things that's helpful, I hope is helpful, is to understand that we have a goal, right? We're trying to get what we call concentrated but also to really understand that the goal can get in the way of the goal, right? Because then we can start thinking about the goal and figuring out the goal and how, when am I going to get there? And oh, how is my samadhi now? And wow, is it going to be better in an hour? And now, oh, it's better than yesterday. We start 
doing a lot of things about samadhi that we don't have to do. And so the paradox that I just want to say is the goal of getting concentrated is something we align with, but we don't want to keep looking at did we get there or not right now. Because looking at the goal is not enacting the practice that will reveal what we're seeking. And, you know, the simple image that came to my mind about this is, you know, you're driving to L.A. and you're looking at the GPS because you want to get to L.A. How far am I and how long and how long? Boom. You're not looking at the road, so you hit a tree. You want to look at the road and what's actually happening now, even if your goal is to get to L.A. That's how we get to L.A., one breath at a time, really. <clears throat> so here I'm going to give uh, a, an understanding of the goal, what I'm calling the goal, defined by the Pali Canon. But I'm going to also inform you how I'm altering the Pali Canon because everybody does, and I just like to be straight about it, meaning uh, I'm going to change the gender in the canon because it's a very male-oriented canon because of time and place and culture, etc. And we're in a different time and place and culture. And so you won't hear the he that is in the old texts, but you're hearing Eugene's modern translation of the old text. And so it said, what is right concentration, Sama Samadhi? There is a case where a practitioner, quite withdrawn from sense pleasures, withdrawn from unskillful qualities, mental qualities, enters and remains in the first jhana, rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. Right, The first jhana, and I believe we've talked a bit about jhana, the word both means meditation and absorption. And they can be the same thing, but they can also be slightly different meditation. Meditation could be without absorption. But when the Buddha would tell people to go practice, what he would say is, go do jhana. So he's saying, right, uh, one enters and remains in the first jhana, rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. With the, and then he goes on, with the stilling of directed thought and evaluation, one enters and remains in the second jhana, rapture and pleasure, born of composure, unification of awareness, free from directed thought and evaluation, with internal assurance. My word, confidence. Um, with the fading of rapture, one is in equanimity, and is mindful and alert and senses pleasure with the body. Right? One enters and remains in the third jhana, of which the noble ones declare equanimous and mindful, they have a pleasurable abiding. And then with the abandoning of both pleasure and pain, as with the earlier disappearance of elation and distress, one 
One enters and remains in the fourth jhana, purity of equanimity and mindfulness, neither pleasure nor pain. This is called right concentration, sama samati. And so I'm reading this to you partly because this is our orientation. This is what we're, this is the area of dharma we're playing in this retreat we're experimenting with, we're learning about, we're discovering, we're uh, having it revealed to us in different ways by practicing in this very, very, very simple way of staying aware of the body and the breathing. And I also read this to you because um, it points at something that I like, so I want to put that in, but also that is also not so well understood, which is the skillful use of pleasure in Dharma practice. Because you'll notice he talked every, at the first three jhanas, right? Rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. And then, you know, he said it again, um, rapture and pleasure born of composure, unification of awareness. And then there was a third one, right? Um, um, one is mindful and with equanimity, one is mindful and alert and senses pleasure with the body. And this is a skillful use of pleasure, of the pleasure, in my language, the pleasure of being. And that's a pleasure we want to start to tune into because that pleasure leads to more pleasure and even as the Buddha's pointing, in my language, a pleasure beyond pleasure, a pleasure beyond the usual or conventional or even ordinary sense of pleasure, but the pleasure of what can come, which is called freedom. And so the word jhana, as I said, meant meditation and absorption. For here, what, what we're understanding with that word is what's being pointed at is this unification of mind, the unification, and in Eugene language, of heart and mind. And, and to back up my Eugene languageness, uh, if you look at the ancient text, the word is chitta. And chitta could be translated easily at, in the original language as either heart or mind. Because originally the heart and mind was right here. right, And it slowly moved up with the so-called evolution and pro pro the progress of humans so that now it's more split where we say the mind is here and the heart is here. But originally both, both in the East and in the West, this is where the heart was. And I, it took me a while to find this out. I didn't know. And, and somebody, and then I learned, okay, in the East, chitta is here. People will point to their chest and say, oh yeah, I'm thinking this. But, but in, even in Greece, the, the mind was in the torso originally, which is very interesting how similar and then different human beings are, depending on culture. 
So, um, again, here we're talking about the unification of mind and heart. Um, and the way we've talked about it, now I'm going to again echo what's been said, because we're talking the unification, meaning the concentrated mind and heart is purified, is bright, is unblemished, pliable, pliant, malleable, steady, and attained to imperturbability. One of my favorite words that I never ever use, imperturbability. I guess I don't feel totally imperturbable that often, but but it's it's beautiful what's being pointed at because what's being pointed at sits right here, right? The, the, the potential of the heart and mind, or I'll also, I'll add this word, it's not the technical way that it's used in Buddhism, so it's my way. Consciousness has this uh, ability to be pliant, malleable, steady, unblemished, bright, purified, clear, knowing. And, it, and we, I believe we all know this either directly or intuitively. We all know the potential for what's possible for us. Even if we never say it in those ways, we keep knowing, which is why I believe we're all here, because we know what's actually possible for us as beings and beings who can wake up. <clears throat> and so again, this is the unified mind and heart. And the kind of practice that begins to flower into this revelation of the unification is samadhi practice. And it's just a beautiful, simple practice. And I, I wish... Well, you know, we don't have real flowers up here anymore, but we used to. Um, um, you know, it's like a flower. It's like if you see a flower before the bloom has happened, you, is that clear? Like you see it, it's embodied. I don't know if that's the correct word, but I'll use it. Uh, you know, it looks like this, but you can see the whole aliveness that's there. If you try to squeeze it out, it, it doesn't work. You ha it's good if you give it some water, make sure it gets some sun, and you're patient with it. And then it starts to do this amazing thing. It flowers. And so what we're doing here is tending to our own garden of who and what we are and what's possible. So that, it, so that the samadhi can begin to flower right where we sit. And part of the flowering is, this, is, is part of what's skillful that brings, that is one of the nutriments to this flowering is the absorption that's pointed at also in the word jhana. And again, it's just the unity with the direct experience in this case of the breath. 
and you've had tastes of it and you could even taste it through the whole talk if you stay with the breath and it it could happen where you start to get absorbed in the breath and that's where your practice is much more important than the talk you know the talks these are good talks and you know they're they're okay and all but and valuable but there's something they're pointing at that comes alive right where we sit. And that's why the encouragement is to do a little bit of both, of listen and stay with the breath because you'll also take the talk in on other levels than just the conventional levels of listening to a talk. And what I say here is, oh, all the instructions, talks, metta we have given are in the service of the movement towards a greater unification of mind and the direct knowing, the direct experience, the simple experience of being unified with what's being known, being aware of the breath, and not being separate from it not being distant from it, which is the, the, the word that we've used a lot, which I also love personally, um, and I've used for many years, um, is inti- becoming intimate with the breath. And intimate can be used differently, you know, close, connected, not separated from. And I'll say a little more in a bit about it. Well, maybe I'll say it here. Uh, you know, it's it's part of the intimacy is a beautiful word. I had a friend who once wrote a book. Let's see if I can remember the name. It's something about intimacy, but I don't think I can remember the name. But he 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 um, looked up the origin of the word, and intimacy always had um, uh, there's something unknown about intimacy, and. And we always think of it, it's not like, oh, you get intimate, you open up a can of soup and then, okay, there's a soup. When you get intimate with something, you're discovering something that's not known. And it's, I believe, one of the reasons why we love what we call intimacy, like, and I'll give a classic, you know, um, uh, example, which is when you... um, Fall, have a crush or fall in love with someone and we say, oh, we started to get intimate and it's very exciting. And part of the excitement is you don't know who the person is. And that's part of the intimacy is this discovery. And really, when you start to really like or love somebody, oh, you want to know all about them and you'll hear anything. It doesn't matter how ridiculous it is what they're saying. It, it's, that doesn't matter. You're still, you're hearing them, you're knowing them, you're learning about them, you're seeing them, and it's alive, it's fresh, it's real in the real moment. And, and, and I want to attest as someone who's been married for many, many years, it's, it's the most fun part of a long relationship when you also realize you still don't know the person. And then it's wild, because who the hell is this person you've been with <laughs> 20 years? <laughs> and, and, and 
you know, and it's wild. They'll still relate to me. <laughs> but, but no, and by wild, I mean, oh, there's more to discover. And that's something that we're pointing at when we say become intimate with the breath. There's more that we don't know yet about that experience. And yeah, and there, and I'll say this also, because for me it weaves in with intimacy and the breathing and the experience of the breathing. Uh, it's a body experience and it's a sensual experience. And it's not sense pleasure in the way the Buddha talks about that are not so helpful to go seeking after all the time, but it's just ordinary and here and happening all the time and it's sensual, the breath. And that becomes revealed. And when I say it, really, I mean it on a variety of levels. You know, like, oh, it's physical, yeah. And it and it's even has some very conventional sensual feeling, and I think that's fine, too. And then it starts to reveal other, oh, it's very simple, the breath. And it's sensual in a very simple way. And then it's very subtle. And it, it has a subtle sensuality. And then it's very sublime. And it has a sublime sensuality. And then it's almost transparent. And it has this kind of transparent sensuality. And it's, and it's partly what happens as consciousness gets totally undivided from what it knows. And those are, in my mind, those are all good pleasures of being with the breath. One's not the wrong and the right. They're all good because they take us, they become like in love relationship. It, it is part of the magnetism that draws us closer. And that magnetism is a beautiful part of Dharma practice in, in my experience in general. It has its own magnetism. And so the intimacy is important and the intimacy then becomes one of the components that supports another very, very important thread of samadhi practice. So intimacy, continuity, now, now, now. In my language, 24-7 practice. And it's beautiful to do with the breath. Really, if here I'll be, this is totally honest. I'm totally honored always to be here and teach. It's a very lovely role to be in. But really, I wish I was sitting with you all. Because I missed the retreat recently. I was supposed to sit for a few weeks because somebody got sick and I had to fill in for them in Yucca Valley. And, uh, and happy to do that. But... Sorry, I missed that retreat, and I got here, and it's like, oh yeah, you know, I'm, you know, I'm getting to sit a bit, so it's great, and and I just start to really taste the samadhi. It's like, you know, <laughs> I want to be on that side because <laughs> it's what an opportunity, really, what a beautiful opportunity, and to to really to discover life, to discover the Dharma, to discover reality. And so I'm, I'm a little jealous, that's all, but not too bad. So 
Um, <clears throat> so the continuity and the intimacy and what I'm sure you've seen and we've all know and we all want to make sure we understand is they fluctuate. We don't just get intimate and then it stays intimate forever. We're intimate and then we're further away. It, it, it's like any relationship, okay? Right? You're, you're very intimate and then you're like, oh, who's that person? You know, God, I'm mad at them or whatever. You know, things change. And the same is true of the continuity. Sometimes we can be very continuous. Some people have been talking to me about sitting some longer sitting, sitting for a few hours, two and a half hours, how, how wonderful it was and how, how re relaxed and centered and just in the practice happened. And then they described the crash after. And that happens sometimes. That's normal. It's not even, not in, again, from my ear, because I've been around a little while in the Dharma, not even a big deal, but hard if you don't, if you think, whoa, now I got it. Now, wow, I'm so here. I couldn't stop being here. Good luck. Because um, <laughs> that's not how reality works. And the fluctuating when we know the fluctuation's going to happen, then we can stay relaxed about that also. And even the person I was talking to, I told him, oh, that in my language, oh, you had the rubber band effect. Expand it, expand it, expand it, boom, boom. And then it snaps back and it's like, boy, I thought I was concentrated. Now I'm, you know, thinking and doing this. Blah, 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 blah. That's, that's nor even that's very normal in the Dharma. And, and all of it's normal in the sense as we practice with it, we start to learn how, the art of practice. And, and that's, that's really what teaches us, is our own direct, immediate experience, both good and bad. And so I want to say some more about, so I'm been saying a bit about effort and the skillfulness now with the fluctuations. And then I also want to say a little bit more about the wise use or the skillful use, that's a better word for me, skillful use of pleasure in practice and, and the place of pleasure in the Dharma. And just to, if you don't know, I want to, or if you do know, I'm reminding you that the Buddha did a lot of ascetic practice before, uh, for a number of years, serious, serious ascetic practice, meaning hard, difficult, painful, almost died, was living on one grain of rice a day, at least it's said in the texts. And, uh, and he realized that sometime, at some point, this isn't getting me what I'm seeking. And the Buddha wasn't afraid at all, and this, I love to say this, to go for, for what he wanted, for what he desired, which was freedom. And he went for it. And he was quite strong about going for it, even doing all this very hard, very difficult practice. And so here's from the text, he says, directly related to the Buddha's awakening. Um, he said, I thought, 
whatever a practitioner has felt in the past or will feel in the future or feels now, painful, racking, piercing feeling due to striving, it can equal this, but not exceed what he was feeling right then, but not exceed it. But by this grueling penance, I have attained no distinction worthy of a noble one's knowledge and vision, meaning he didn't wake up. And then he thinks, and so this is also, you're seeing the use of thought in practice, which I love to include. He says, he thinks to himself, might there be another way to enlightenment? Okay, you get it, right? He's doing all this in Eugene language, hard-ass practice. And, and, and then he thinks, could there be some other way I could do this? Which, of course, I feel eternally grateful for that he had this thought. <laughs> and, he said, and then he said, I thought of a time when my father was walk, working and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, quite secluded from sense pleasures, secluded from unwholesome things I had had entered upon and abode in things, and then I had entered upon and abode in the first meditation, which is first jhana, which is accompanied by thinking and exploring with happiness and pleasure born of seclusion. And I thought, might this be the way to enlightenment, to awakening? Then following up with that memory, there came the recognition that this was the way to enlightenment. And then I had a thought, why am I afraid of such pleasure? It is pleasure that has nothing to do with sense desire and unwholesome things. And then I thought, I am not afraid of such pleasure. So this sets the stage for his awakening, is his coming to terms with pleasure in practice and the pleasure of practice or the pleasure, let me say it better, that's both true, that's a nice way to say it, the pleasure of practice, but the pleasure that's possible in in practice as we get here with it as we start to land in our direct experience. And I believe every one of us has had that experience in some way, shape, or form, whether with the breath or some other way, or or you wouldn't be here. You know something about the pleasure of being, of actually being here, of being right now, of the aliveness, of the knowing, of the awareness, of the heartfulness and compassion that is possible as we get here. And of course, as I believe somebody was saying today, right? Maybe Sally was saying it was, it's very popular in America now because of everybody gets it. Oh, whatever we want to do or be, being here is the way to do it, right? It's hard to do it if we're somewhere else in our hearts and minds. So part of the paradox is this, the pleasure of practice or the pleasure of being the Dharma 
or the different ways pleasure will reveal itself as we practice with a sense of well-being or and happiness or the sense of satisfaction or the enjoyment that can come in any moment right just the enjoyment even the enjoyment sometimes people you know will say wow the sun or the trees or the animals were so beautiful and totally true but also pay attention to the heart and mind that is seeing those animals or the sun or the trees because that's where the pleasure is it's not in the animals it's in us and we can start to recognize that component of our experience when we're aware and present in a living moment of seeing a young deer and it's the same pleasure that can happen as we feel the kindness of the dharma or the nourishment of the dharma or the satisfaction of actually just being here in a simple way in a in a in some ways in a totally ordinary way but it's extraordinary in its simplicity <clears throat> and so when you notice the pleasures that can happen, even the pleasure may be of, oh, I'm tired and I'm getting in bed, and you lay out in the bed and it's like whoosh, and it, there's some pleasure there. Breathe with that pleasure. Don't, don't worry or think, oh, I shouldn't feel good or pleasure or anything. No, it's fine, but practice with it because we want to let the pleasure weave into the Dharma, because then it will reveal more and more of the Dharma itself, as the Buddha said in many ways I've already quoted. And here again, this is from the uh, Latukiki Opama Sutta from the Majjhima Nikaya. He says, Jhana is called the pleasure of renunciation, of seclusion, the pleasure of peace, the pleasure of awakening. And I say this kind of pleasure, I say of this kind of pleasure that it should be pursued and that it should be developed and it should be cultivated, that it should not be feared. And so there's a beautiful offering to us to enjoy the, what I call, not exactly a Buddhist way to say it, but Eugene's way, the pleasure of being. The pleasure of being here and being here in a dharmic way that's more and more and more unified with the experience. And that's the simplicity we are encouraging and, um, and uh, playing with and learning about even during the talk and also after the talk and before the talk. And, and uh, Andrea said it, I believe, similar, you know, another way of saying what was just said. She called it renunciation pleasure, seclusion pleasure, calm pleasure, self-awakening pleasure. <clears throat> and so this path of samadhi is part of, a, part of the purification, or another way to say it, is the clarification of heart and mind with direct experience, with the here and nowness 
of reality. That is all that's ever happening is the here and nowness. No matter what the content is, whether it's thoughts, feelings, sights, sounds, tastes, touch, it's only happening here and now. It's only this. And that simplicity is what we're starting to relax with and clarify. <clears throat> and I want to say a little bit also about the practice of samadhi and the skillfulness of effort in terms of there are different archetypal threads that we are working with and I want to point to both of them and we've already been and when I say archetypal I'm going to use two words because there's a feminine thread and a masculine thread but when I use the words feminine and masculine I'm not talking about uh, women and men I'm talking about an archetypal thread that's been used throughout history and so I'm using, I'm pulling from that lineage of archetypal reality. And the, and the two components that I'm referring to as feminine or masculine are the receptivity that we've been pointing at and encouraging beautifully. And the other part, which is what I'm calling willfulness and the importance of both threads of the archetype because both sides of the archetype live in each of us, right? The masculine and the feminine archetypes are right here, right? And we want to use the, or we want to find our alignment with both because they're both in the practice of samadhi and in the practice of meditation. And they're very skillful to begin to, um, uh, develop both of those capacities or in more Eugene language, both of those muscles. And so we've been encouraging a lot about receptivity, re relaxation, letting the breath come to us. Beautiful, lovely teaching, great teaching. We've been a little less um, uh, explicit about the willfulness of practice about the practice that's active and engaged and it uses resolve. And as somebody who I was working with today, I believe it was today, uh, she said, oh yeah, I feel a steely, steely determination. And that's, that's a good part of practice when that happens. And it doesn't mean when I'm, and I'm gonna say some different things, but it doesn't mean, oh, you have to go do them you'll see when, when they get called up for you and that's what's needed to, for practice to both be intimate and consistent, have continuity in order to, for both of those things to begin to deepen and, and reveal more about samadhi. And that's part of the art of practice is knowing how to use both the masculine and feminine archetypes in our practice in that way. Both the allowing openness and the non-direction and then also the direction, resolve and determination. And um, here I, I give one example that I like to give um, for, from, of, of this kind of 
a weaving of these kind of practices. Um, actually, um, okay, I'll just go with where I'm going. Um, <laughs> um, uh, no, I'm not going to go where I was going. I'm going to go here. Um, here, I'll, I'll say a little bit more about this, um, uh, what I'm calling willful practice, because I know a little bit about it, and I know the benefits of it, and I know the pluses and negatives of it, because I've lived with it long enough and practiced with it. And when I was young, I thought that was great practice, and that practice was... Uh, was uh, uh, um, for me, uh, embedded in the phrase, practice as if your head is on fire. And that was, that was a phrase I heard very young in the Dharma. And I thought, oh, that's, that's the way to practice. Practice as if your hair is on fire. And I thought, oh, that was great. Great idea. And I would try to practice really hard and long periods and all kinds of, you know, and I learned some things and it was good. But then later, I found the actual quote from a Chinese master, uh, Dao Zen, fifteen eighty to six seventy four, five eighty, excuse me, to six seventy four. He said, "When the mind of it of itself, when the mind of itself is peaceful and pure, then all that is needed is bold advance, as if to save your head from fire." So here, you, you hear what he's combining. He's combining an already relaxed, peaceful, pure presence, and then a certain kind of, in my la- language, really it's Tibetan language I'm using now, Vajra energy. Vaj- Vajra is a sort of, of energy, sort of compassion. And, um, and he's combining them, that kind of willfulness right when it's the right time and um, and so so that one doesn't have to be afraid to use strong or intense or fiery practice at times because that's called for at the right time and you know like i said somebody was telling me about their steely determination and it's got a little bit of that to it. And that's also part of practice, as well as the relax, open, receive. Like, see what happens if you get, if, you, if it feels right, if you want to spend an hour with the breath and be fierce about it. Like, I'm not going to lose this breath and see what happens. And again, the steely determination, the fierceness, the practice as if one's head is on fire is not saying to get tense, is not saying to get tight or like this, which I've done plenty of in practice. It doesn't work. And that's why we've been so encouraging the relaxation. But real steely determination has a tremendous, it's like a great dancer. If you go see a great dancer, ballet dancer, or modern dancer, any kind, they'll do things and it seems like, wow, how the hell did they do that? It was just like nothing. But they know, they know how to pra- dance fiercely in a relaxed way because it's really from the inside. It's not just making hard, difficult, tense, tight muscles. 
And so one, my own experience, I'll say a little bit about this, not, not in Dharma practice, but I swam in the bay for many years. I used to I'd live in San Francisco and I used to live very close to Aquatic Park and I was a bay swimmer in the South End Rowing Club. And I swam for, you know, five times a week for year round with no wetsuit. I like to say that. No, none of that wetsuit stuff. And, um, you know, and it was, it was a practice because it's cold in the Bay. <laughs> and a great practice and a beautiful lineage in San Francisco, hundred and some years, you know, in South End Rowing Club, people have been swimming in the Bay. And, um, and uh, one year, and, every, and I wasn't a big competitive swimmer, but I liked to swim. And then one year, the Alcatraz swim was happening. This is before they did public Alcatraz swims, actually. And, uh, and South End was having its uh, annual um, Alcatraz swim. And, and just like three days before, something was happening. Actually, I was having a hard time. And I thought, well, I'm going to go swim Alcatraz. And without prepping for it, really. <laughs> like, but, you know, I was young. So... So I, uh, I signed up, I got into the swim, and I went out, and they drop you off at Alcatraz, and you swim back to the city. <laughs> and um, I'm wise enough to ask for advice. So I asked some of the people who were, had done it, some people had done it a lot of times, and one guy said the best thing, he said, start slow and finish slow. Really, start slow and finish slow. In the middle, make your push. And I, I got it. Like, oh, that was a skillful way to swim Alcatraz. And so, you know, you get dropped in and the city looks far away when you're in the water. Alcatraz. In fact, you can't really see the beach. You look at the two buildings, the two um, residential towers that are above Aquatic Park, that's what you're orienting towards because that's really all you can see as a good marker. And then, uh, and, but I remember it starts slow because, you know, you're kind of nervous. Can, can I do this? How's this going to go? It's, you know, and there's, it's choppy and there's waves and there's current, right? You, you're, they, they try to put you in, I forget what it's called, ebb, ebb, the, where, where there's the least current happening. And, um, and you know, and but who knows what's going to happen? Believe me, they they've made a lot of mistakes at times. But uh, so I get in, I start slow, and I and I realize, oh yeah, this you just want to get your breath, get your momentum, go, get get relaxed, get relaxed, and then at a certain point you see, oh yeah, this is you know you you move finally the the island is not two feet away from you. It's, then it's 10 feet, then it's 12, then it's 15, then it's, you know, the island stands like, okay, I'm getting a little bit, it's going, going. And then you see, oh yeah, okay, I'm okay. And then it's like, oh, I'm, I'm in the middle, I can see the city, I can see the island. Now's the time to make the push. And it just means you, you just, that little bit more of that determination. It doesn't even necessarily mean faster, but the deter you just give yourself to the swim fully and you go and then you get you see what happens as you get close then you want to really speed up oh i want to get in and talk to people or get the hell out of the water because it's cold and but 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 also i remembered the instruction finish slow 
And that was a great instruction because it's a graceful way to do it, to start slow, to finish slow, in the middle, make your push. And so that's, I think of that when I do retreats. I start slow, I finish slow, in the middle, let's see what can happen. Let's see what's possible because we're here now. You've done plenty to get here in these four days. We're in the middle of the retreat. In Eugene language, go for it. Meaning, see in a skillful way what's possible as you respond kindly and skillfully and directly to what's going on right now. How's your breath? Right? And, and be relaxed even when I ask that. But notice you can start to tune in to the, to the living experience that's right here breathing. And then the question I like to ask people is, okay, what's needed to make this a 24-7 practice for a few days? And that's, that's an ongoing investigation into how to practice samadhi. So I'll end with a quote from one of my favorite teachers, Suzuki Roshi, who talked about breath practice. He said, when we practice, our mind always follows our breath. When we inhale, the air comes into the inner world. When we exhale, the air goes out to the outer world. The inner world is limitless. And the outer world is also limitless. We say inner world or outer world, but actually there's just one whole world. In this limitless world, the air comes in and out, just like someone passing through a swinging door. If you think, I breathe, the I is extra. There is no need for you to say I. What we call I is just the swinging door that moves when we inhale and when we exhale. It just moves, that is all. When your mind is pure and calm enough to follow this movement, there is nothing, no thing, no I, no world, no mind, nor body, just the swinging door. So when we practice, all that exists is the movement of the breathing, but we are aware of this movement. All that exists is the movement of the breathing but, all, but we are aware of this movement. But to be aware of this, the movement does not mean to be aware of your small sense of self, but rather to be aware of your universal nature or Buddha nature.
Thank you for your kind attention. We have a period of walking and breathing practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.